Welcome to Connect the Dots, a podcast produced by the Center for Progressive Reform with your host, Rob Verchik. Hi, everyone. Today, you're going to be hearing about climate change and its effect on worker safety. Now, you may know something about the climate impacts that we'll have to prepare for. Higher temperatures, more extreme storms, more exposure to ticks and mosquitoes. But you may not have thought very much about how climate change impacts are going to affect workers, particularly workers who are exposed to and vulnerable to heat. Think about workers on farms or construction sites or loading boxes in unair conditioned warehouses. There's not a lot of research on this topic yet, but recently when I was in Washington, D.C., I had the chance to catch up with two people who know quite a bit about this. One is Sid Shapiro. He holds the Frank Fletcher Chair in Administrative Law at Wake Forest University, and he's a member scholar at CPR. And the other is Katie Tracy, a specialist in workers' rights and a policy analyst at CPR. Sid Shapiro and Katie Tracy completed a study just recently called Occupation Health and Safety, which will appear in an upcoming book that Professor Rosemary Lister and I have just completed editing. That book is called The Research Handbook on Climate Disaster. Well, this is sober stuff, but as we'll hear, there's a lot that we can do to tackle this challenge. So here's my interview, which took place in Washington, D.C. in late May with Sid Shapiro and Katie Tracy. Katie and Sid, thanks for being here today. Our pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So as you know, I've been researching climate impacts for a long time, and I have to say that there isn't a lot of literature on the climate impacts related to occupational hazards, certainly in the United States. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could start by uh, my asking what are the sorts of risks that you're most concerned about when we're talking about occupational hazard and climate impacts? Uh, we can get into that because it's very important, but if I can uh, pick up on something with which you started, um, which is that there isn't much in the way of writing about the risk to workers because of climate change. But I think that's true in general. Uh, in the United States uh, because the workers are, who are at the most risk for being injured or even die from what happens in the workplace tend to be lower paid blue collar workers. It's a matter of out of sight, out of mind. For so many of us, we don't work in those occupations. We may not know anyone who works in those occupations. And so the fact that a worker might risk his or her life going to work every day is just something to which we pay little attention. So OSHA and its efforts to protect workers, I think, receives less attention than we really ought to pay to it. So OSHA, being the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, um, they're in charge of the federal standards, as you point out, for safety and workers, and yet you're right, we don't hear about them very much in the news, or, or it seems to me as, as citizens really follow uh, what they do very much. The other reason you might not have heard a lot about OSHA and workers and the risks of climate change um, is that OSHA's done very little about it, in fact. 
most states and federal agencies have done little to look ahead and start to protect workers from these dangers, which I know we haven't discussed yet. Right. But that also goes into why there's been so little written. Well, let's get into that then. Katie, in, in the piece that you and Sid uh, wrote on occupational safety and climate, um, you go through some of the, some of the main um, impacts from climate change that create some of the main risks. Can you unpack that a little bit? What, what are the problems that we're worried most about or should be worried most about? So I think heat stress or, or exposure to excessive heat especially for outdoor workers, is probably the most obvious hazard. But there are many other hazards as well, especially from extreme weather events. And as we know with climate change, those are going to become more frequent and more intense. So those hazards will also uh, become a greater risk. Uh, we also have exposure to airborne pollutants and uh, vector-borne illnesses from floodwaters, um, waterborne diseases. And so there's just a whole host of hazards that we're already aware of that will increasingly become more risky, and then we'll have new emerging risks that workers will also have to um, grapple with. Um, we mentioned earlier the workers who would be exposed, and for outdoor workers that's going to be you know, construction workers, but we also have indoor risk uh, for commercial kitchens, mining, smelters and foundries. Okay, so for, for workers outside, you, you, as you say, we're talking landscapers, construction workers, certainly people working in agriculture on farms, and then inside, as you point out, I was surprised to, to read in your paper about um, all of the heat stress that miners endure, and, and, uh, and, and people who are loading boxes in, in large unair-conditioned um, uh, warehouses, for instance, and others. So uh, let's pick up on the heat. I mean, you're right, that seems obvious. And I, I was looking up some of this uh, information to just make sure I had the most recent data. And according to government studies here in the United States, the average temperature in the lower 48 has increased 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. And according to these same studies, um, frequency and intensity of extreme temperatures is said to be, quote, virtually certain to agree, to increase in the United States on the climate uh, on the account of climate change what uh, specifically does heat do in an agricultural field or uh, on a construction site what are, what are the physical medical risks that one runs by by working in an area in which there's extreme heat so when you're outdoors and it starts to get hot it's not just about the temperature itself but it's about the humidity level as well and when, when it's hot and humid and you're trying to do work, you start to, hopefully you start to sweat because that's how you would, uh, you know, avoid heat stroke. But what happens is workers start to get very hot and then your cognitive functions start to decline. So it becomes harder to do the task you were already doing, which imposes more dangers of general safety risk to the workers outdoors. Okay, so this is more than just what I would think of as physiological hazard of uh, of passing out, let's say, or um, of, uh, of of having some kind of, of heart trouble or something, you're actually saying that when your your cognition is impaired, that you make other choices that might lead to some kind of a physical accident in, yes, in, in, in which you're hurt. What it also leads to uh, fatigue, and so uh, as we can discuss, perhaps in more detail a bit later, uh, workers are less productive uh, in the heat. 
and they're particularly less productive uh, if businesses don't take care to protect workers from the heat. So in addition to, to medical issues that, that are related directly to the employees, you're saying that there actually might be economic damage that occurs as, as a result. Yes, uh, it, it could be extreme economic damage. Either way, when it comes to how employers respond to heat stress, workers are either going to have to take more breaks, which will result in lowered productivity, or they will have to extend working hours, and workers will have to take on the economic risk unless they get pay raises. So either way, there will be a shift in the economics, and it will just uh, be a matter of how we respond to that, um, whether we put it on the companies who are responsible or the employees who aren't. So how, how might the employees actually lose out economically? Is it because they're working or, or producing things more slowly and then and therefore being paid less as a result of that? So there's, there's two ways this could happen. One is if you're a farm worker who works for, um, based on the quantity of what you pick, and it's very hot and you have to take breaks more often, then you have to work, you have to work longer hours or you get paid less because you weren't able to pick as much. Um, other, otherwise, the other option is that workers may or employers may extend the working hours, which takes away from your work-life balance. Okay, so that's the heat. Now, I, I was noticing. We, uh, yeah, go ahead. Move on go ahead, from the Steve. heat. Uh, you were asking about uh, the fact that uh, workers are not only endangered; uh, their employers lose uh, productivity. And the numbers are ex extraordinarily high. There was a study of workers in Germany uh, that estimated the current loss of the current loss of productivity due to heat packs, uh, heat impacts, as between 771 million. Uh, uh, excuse me, between 771 and 3.4 billion dollars a year. Uh, estimates put productivity loss in the Caribbean and areas like Asia at 11 to 27 percent uh, because of heat already. And there's even estimates that uh, labor capacity has reduced 80 or 90 percent uh, in the hottest months in the hottest places in the world. Um, so this is, this is a real problem for employers and obviously for employees. That's huge. And, and now, as you say, we're, we're just talking about the heat, which is just one of the impacts from, from climate. There, there, there are actually a number of other side effects which we can uh, get into, and I'm not sure whether those studies are based on all of those impacts or just heat alone. I see. Uh, but they're all related to heat. So, right. Uh, heat is the uh, ground floor of all these uh, other uh, effects. Well, now you and you too write in your in your paper, and I'm going to quote here. You say substantial economic dislocation is also likely as the economy begins the transition to greener industries. Some employers or even whole industries may disappear while new industries emerge. And so this this is not just economic decline in certain sectors, but as you write, dislocation. Can you ex explain that? Uh, a little bit? So I think a really good example of this is what we're seeing with the coal industry. The mm -hmm. industry is starting to disappear, to decline because we're moving toward more renewable uh, energy sources like solar. 
and so we're seeing a decline in that industry. But even if we see an increase of jobs in these new renewable energies, the workers from the coal industry will lose their jobs. So we have to put them on a path to transition to new jobs. Um, we can't just leave them behind. Okay. Th this sounds a little bit, it certainly sounds like a bad news story, but if I could, okay, uh, being a little creative, it seems like a, a bad news, good news story in the following way. The bad news is that we have these climate impacts that are coming down the pike that are happening actually right now, and they're going to result in, um, in, in medical problems with workers and with economic problems for the country and for the workers as well. That's the bad news. It seems to me the good news, if you're looking for a silver lining, is that these problems, uh, heat stress, and uh, you write in your paper, air pollution in occupational hazard, as an occupational hazard, um, UV exposure, uh, ultraviolet radiation exposure as, um, uh, as, as an impact. These are all things that we're familiar with. If not at the scale that you're talking about, they're issues that we're already familiar with. And so the question I guess I have is, don't we already have a legal regime that to some degree is sensitive to the issues of heat stress and air pollution and UV radiation and the rest? Um, is, is, is there, do we already have the infrastructure in place that we could build on? Uh, yes and no. Uh, certainly all of these various problems that get worse in the heat whether um, it's increased air pollution, uh, whether it's more insects uh, who pose health risks, uh, whether it's uh, heat stress itself, um, there are regulatory agencies across the government and the states as well uh, that have responsibilities of protecting citizens from all these kinds of risks. Uh, so, to that extent, it is a good news story. Um, but the no is that uh, we're not doing a very good job of addressing existing risks. And one of the key points of our paper is that these risks are going to get worse uh, as climate changes and as heat rises. So, uh, we're not doing what we need to do now, and we're going to have to do that and more in the future. So how would an agency like OSHA address uh, the problem of heat extremes for, let's say, farm workers? OSHA could easily adopt a heat stress standard to protect workers from, from the excessive heat they're exposed to. Unfortunately, OSHA has not. And Wait, I, I want to I stop you OSHA. there. You're saying that OSHA doesn't have a standard right now for exposure to extreme heat? Nope, no standard at all. Uh, there's been an effort to propose a standard. They, at, at one point, um, formed a, an advisory committee uh, to formulate a standard, but never adopted the standard. Uh, groups have petitioned OSHA to adopt a standard and even helped write a draft standard, but again, OSHA chose to not adopt the standard. So uh, they have some piecemeal regulations in place that help to address some of the heat, heat risk, but they 
none of the standards actually say anything about climate change or heat specifically. And, and there's no national standard that says that when the temperature hits a certain level that workers can't be outside? There is no standard like that, except for the military, which actually does have standards for our soldiers. Okay. And what about, um, isn't there a rule, an OSHA rule about accessibility to drinking water? I mean, if you're working in a construction site or, or in the fields or something like that? Yes, they, they do have a standard on having access to drinking water, but unfortunately it doesn't say exactly what what uh, how often you need to have water available, how frequently you need to take breaks to drink the water or have, and it doesn't say anything about the specific heat related risk. You're listening to CPR's Connect the Dots. Today we're talking about climate change impacts and worker safety with Sid Shapiro and Katie Tracy. Let's take a short break. Hi, this is David Flores, policy analyst for the Center for Progressive Reform. When floodwaters recede, toxic contamination remains. Runoff from a scrapyard leaves lead dust on city sidewalks. At CPR, we're working on the pollution sources that you can't see and that the government regulators aren't looking for. Visit our Toxic Floodwaters Project on CPR's website and take a trip with us through Virginia's communities and waterways, from the state's highlands to its tidewater. And we'll take a look at how climate change and lax industrial regulation threaten public safety and our economy. You're listening to CPR's Connect the Dots. We're talking about climate change impacts and worker safety with Sid Shapiro, a professor of law at Wake Forest University and a member scholar at CPR, and Katie Tracy, a specialist in workers' rights and a policy analyst at CPR. What uh, what should be OSHA be doing? Do we have... You're making the case that we don't have the legal structure that we would need. Do we have the information that we would need to know uh, what the effects of heat stress and all the rest are on workers and, and what would be uh, a good thing to do to, to combat that problem? Uh, we do. As Katie said, uh, the Armed Forces actually is fairly advanced on this. Um, and you can turn to medical science that tells you how often people should have breaks how much water they should consume, uh, the availability of shade is important, uh, the first two are less effective um, if you're standing in the direct hot sun uh, while you're drinking the water uh, and trying to cool down. So uh, some sort of shade uh, would be necessary uh, if you are a farm worker. Uh, it may be necessary to have tents or other such uh, facilities at the farm field, uh, perhaps fans. Um, so these are all changes which we could make uh, to do this. Uh, the fact is the body can adapt to doing a reasonable amount of work in hot weather, uh, but only if it's uh, treated properly and not put under undue stress. What, are states doing a better job at this? Uh, there are currently three states that have standards on heat stress. Um, California is leading the way on, mm -hmm. on heat stress uh, with an outdoor heat standard, but also a new indoor heat standard. Uh, so they've been making significant progress. 
Um, of the uh, infrastructure we have, the legal infrastructure we have for protecting workers at the national scale, are, are we good at enforcing those rules? It, it seems in your paper you make the case that we're not, you know, to, to be frank, uh, and that uh, we don't know about as many violations as we should in the workplace that endanger workers. Why is that, do you think? Um, OSHA has, for the reasons perhaps we discussed earlier in our discussion, uh, been fairly beleaguered and underfunded as an agency. Um, and so one of the consequences of that is it has far too few inspectors uh, to really inspect workplaces and make sure that its regulations are being obeyed. Um, and it same goes for the Washington staff uh, because of the small size of the agency, which is shrinking under budget cuts. There aren't enough people left to turn out a lot of regulations, and so OSHA is very slow uh, in getting to the next problem uh, that it probably should address. And so although, as Katie said earlier in the interview, um, it's known about this problem for years and years, um, it still hasn't been able to do anything about it uh, in terms of uh, turning to this problem versus other things to which it's attending. And I'll just add to what Sid said that OSHA does have a voluntary initiative, um, a heat stress campaign that they roll out every summer to try and raise awareness on the issue. And they even have an app that employers and employees can use to find out the heat index near them. And it, and it has a whole list of precautions they can take. But the only way that OSHA can enforce any heat stress standard um, or any heat stress hazards that workers uh, experience is through what is called the general duty clause. Under the general duty clause, it's uh, aptly named for uh, requiring employers to um, protect workers from known hazards and risk even if OSHA doesn't have a standard. But OSHA doesn't use that authority very often because they have a pretty high bar to proving their cases. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that they can issue this, but I think it's um, in 2012 there were uh, multiple deaths, but OSHA only issued uh, general duty clause citation 17 times in that year for heat stress. I see. It occurs to me uh, another obvious point is that, is that of the people who are working in in these areas that are that are prone to heat stress, whether it's agricultural fields or it's construction sites or it's people putting on the roof on a house, these are these are folks that are um, are often immigrants. They're often people. Uh, who are vulnerable in, in a number of legal ways, I suppose, and, and aren't going to, going to be um, the, the, the first folks who are going to, I suppose, blow the whistle, right? Well, that's true because uh, in many ways these are very undesirable jobs. Uh, yeah. You're working outside. If you are a farm worker, you're exposed to pesticides. It's stoop work. It's hand work. And I think... Um, the agricultural industry has found over the years it's simply unable to hire Americans uh, to do that work. Um, 
And so it tends to be immigrants and other people who've come to this country to, to do that work. Um, and um, they're probably the least educated and with the least power among workers to do something, even if they think they are exposed to uh, hazards uh, that are dangerous to themselves. I'll just add that when it comes to heat stress or any of the other hazards that workers face in the job, um, one of the problems that immigrants face is that their employers often threaten them, with, especially if they're undocumented, with uh, deportation. They, they say if you're going to raise a hazard, we'll call ICE. So workers are, don't feel comfortable speaking up or working with law enforcement or even OSHA officials because of this problem. So this becomes a, an issue of, of social inequality among many other issues, right? It, it, it's about climate, it's about economics, uh, the e economics of industry and, and farming, but it, it, it's also about class and, and socially vulnerable people. Absolutely, and that's why in the solution to this problem and how we address climate change, we have to consider this and how we design those solutions. Well, what might... Um, what might a good set of solutions look like? If we had uh, a set of lawmakers, either in a large state like California or uh, a set of lawmakers uh, in Congress who are interested in addressing this problem, what would you suggest? Uh, we can take the kind of steps that we discussed um, earlier by way of protecting workers whereby employers adapt their workplace to the change in working conditions. Um, and that means uh, protecting their workers by, as we discussed, more frequent breaks, shade, water, resting, hats, and other kinds of protections, such as changing the hours of the day in which uh, people work to cooler uh, times uh, of the day. Well, I want to go back then to something that uh, Katie and I were talking about earlier. I had asked that question about whether um, substantial economic dislocation is likely uh, because of uh, climate impacts making certain outdoor jobs harder to perform, and, and I guess we could say more expensive to perform. But it, it sounds like, Sid, when you're talking about the driver of what many people would call substantial economic dislocation, uh, which is not producing the fossil fuels that we have in, in the past and consuming them the way that we have in the past. Uh, well, that's right. Um, so the good news for workers um, that particularly are outdoors, um, if we can start to reduce greenhouse gases, we could mitigate the amount of heat rise in climate change. And that's just better off for them uh, because they're less exposed to uh, drastic levels of heat. Um, at the same time, the regulatory actions or even voluntary actions we take to reduce greenhouse gases means that there's going to be economic disruption in industries uh, which particularly contribute uh, to greenhouse gases. Um, and one example uh, is coal mining, uh, which economic trends are causing to decline anyway. 
but that decline will be hastened as we move to more reliance on renewable energy. And the workers that work in industries uh, such as oil and gas production and coal, uh, are, there's going to be less jobs there and they're going to be adversely affected economically. So this doesn't sound like it's good news for workers in these sectors, no matter how you slice it. What, what's the solution to that? Well, the solution is that we have to pay attention to it. Um, that um, if we um, ignore these changes, then we're leaving those workers on their own to try to make some sort of transition um, to more and better employment, or at least employment. Um, but as we see, for example, in areas of Appalachia, where coal mining has decreased, um, workers, for various reasons, are stuck in those regions. There's very little economic development. Um, there are no replacement jobs, or the replacement jobs don't pay very well. And we've created these huge swaths of poverty uh, in those areas, and workers are left without any way out. So we need government policies that try to revitalize those areas. Uh, it's something we owe the workers. We'd all benefit as a nation from uh, reducing the degree of climate change. It's worth billions and billions of dollars to us to do so uh, in avoided damages. Um, and we need to be aware of uh, these workers and offer them new opportunities and help create new infrastructure in their areas uh, to help build a replacement economy. As I have been uh, interviewing folks uh, in this series about climate change impacts, um, I always uh, try to ask one, one question toward the end. I'm going to ask you, Katie, if that's okay. Do you see any ray of hope in any of this? Are there any things that make you feel hopeful? So I, I think there's good news here. This can actually be a win-win. Um, as we transition to the renewable energy sector and uh, you know solar and wind, uh, we can, we'll actually see a, an increase in jobs. There will be more job opportunities. So as long as we put in place the policies to help workers, everybody can come out of this better than before. Uh, so there is already uh, principles, what's called the Just Transition Movement, um, that will help us get there. We just need to put it into legislation and policy at the state, federal, international, all levels of government. Katie Tracy, Sid Shapiro, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes my interview on climate change and worker safety held earlier this year at Georgetown's Melrose Hotel in Washington, D.C. My guests were Sid Shapiro of Wake Forest University and Katie Tracy, policy analyst at CPR. Our music today was by Lobo Loco. Take care. You've been listening to Connect the Dots podcast by the Center for Progressive Reform, we're a legal policy center helping to build healthy communities, safe workplaces, and a more resilient planet. 
Check us out and subscribe to our podcast by visiting our website, www.progressivereform.org. Thanks. See you there.